Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust, and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. This episode further explores the concept of normality by looking at disability theory and eugenics. To acknowledge the giftedness of life is to recognize that our talents and powers are not wholly our own doing, despite the effort we expend to develop and to exercise them. It is also to recognize that not everything in the world is open to whatever use we may desire or devise. Appreciating the gifted quality of life constrains the Promethean project and conduces to a certain humility. A few years ago, Watson stirred controversy by saying that if a gene for homosexuality were discovered, a woman should be free to abort the fetus that carried it. When his remark provoked an uproar, he replied that he was not singling out gays by asserting a principle. Women should be free to abort fetuses for any reason of genetic preference. For example, if the child would be dyslexic or lacking musical talent or too short to play basketball. Watson's scenario are clearly objectionable for those for whom all abortion is an unspeakable crime. But for those who do not subscribe to the pro-life position, these scenarios raise a hard question. If it is morally troubling to contemplate abortion to avoid a gay child or a dyslexic one, doesn't this suggest that something is wrong with acting on eugenic preference, even when no state coercion is involved? Removing the coercion does not vindicate eugenics. The problem with eugenics and genetic engineering is that they represent the one-sided triumph of willfulness over giftedness, of dominion over reverence, of molding over beholding. Why, we may wonder, should we worry about this triumph? Why not shake off our unease about genetic enhancement as so much superstition? In a social world that prizes mastery and control, parenthood is a school for humility. That we care deeply about our children and yet cannot choose the kind we want teaches parents to be open to the unbidden. Such openness is a disposition worth affirming, not only within families, but in the wider world as well. It invites us to abide the unexpected, to live with dissonance, to reign in the impulse to control. 
there is something appealing, even intoxicating, about a vision of human freedom unfettered by the given. It may even be the case that the allure of that vision played a part in summoning the genomic age into being. It is often assumed that the powers of enhancement we now possess arose as an inadvertent byproduct of biomedical progress. The genetic revolution came, so to speak, to cure disease and stayed to tempt us with the prospect of enhancing our performance, designing our children, and perfecting our nature. That may have the story backwards. It is more plausible to view genetic engineering as the ultimate expression of our resolve to see ourselves astride the world, the masters of our nature. But that promise of mastery is flawed. It threatens to banish our appreciation of life as a gift and to leave us with nothing to affirm or behold outside our own will. This excerpt came from an article uh, written by Michael Sandel titled The Case Against Perfection, published in 2007. With new technologies today, it became possible to enhance genetics thanks to genetic screening. But what do we screen off? Whose vision of perfection are we fulfilling when we screen out certain defects? Sandal argues that the pursuit of perfection is flawed for reasons that go beyond safety and fairness. But before we get to his arguments, let's explore how disability can be defined. What is disability? How has it been defined in bioethics, for instance? When you begin to think about the notion of disability, you quickly discover that it's quite a tricky concept. And once we start questioning what disability is, we're going to realize that we need to question correspondingly what normalcy is as well. Disability isn't nearly as marginal of a state as people often think. First, each of us start our life radically disabled as babies and will almost certainly end our life radically disabled as well. And in between, we go through periods of disability because of illness or accidents or whatever else. So disability is a fact of life for all of us at different points in the life cycle. We are all really deeply dependent, in fact, on technology and on other people. We have this idea that disabled people are dependent and the rest of us are independent. But in fact, we spend our time relying on the social and the technological world to take care of an enormous number of our needs. And we take that dependence for granted. Is there less function to somebody who has fewer limbs, for instance? Well, maybe we just lack imagination. Imagine this, aliens come to Earth and they have four arms. They look at us and they think of us as incredibly incapacitated because they can do so many things with their four arms and we have just two arms. If one of their babies was born with just two arms, maybe they would look at it as a disability. They might even abort that baby. But let's talk about a disability that happens in the midst of one's person's life. For instance, war veterans who lose a limb. Maybe the trauma here has more to do with the pain and suffering of the injury and the change itself that the injury forced upon the life of the veteran. 
It might not be the state of missing a limb per se that is disabling, but the not being used to deal with life with a different body than the one they once knew. That existential radical disruption makes them question, and fairly so, the quality of life they will now have by comparison with the life they had with their prior body. Is disability not a problematic word, implying that a person who is disabled is deficient, lacking an ability it's supposed to have? There are two models for how to think about disability. The first one is the most intuitive one, the one you probably think about when uh, you think about disability. We call it the medical model of disability. Basically, it's the idea that disability is something wrong, funny again to use here a morally connotated word, it's an impairment, a dysfunction inherent to an individual body or to a particular kind of body. In this conception, doctors are here to fix or to mitigate as much as they can the disability with medical interventions. The other model that is actually challenging the medical one is what we call the social model of disability. According to this social model of disability, disability is not anymore to be considered a property of an individual body at all, but it is to be understood as a relationship between that body and its social, material, and technological environment. Disability now means a poor fit between the person and their surroundings. Let's take the example of myopia. It's a very common thing, and we don't think of it as a disability because it's easy to take care of the problem with glasses or contact lenses. But if we lived in a hunter-gatherer society where acute vision is vital and there are no accessible ways for fixing myopia, then it would be considered a serious disability. So to answer the question about how impaired someone is, you need to look at how fit their body is to a specific environment and its specific expectations. Look at deafness. It was considered a major disability up until, what, 20 years ago, whereas now, with written communication, it is less perceived as such. It is a difference, but way less disabling than it used to be. We can and possibly should adopt this context-dependent view on normalcy. What counts as a normal body in one context might count as a disabled body in another context. How should we address disability? What should doctors, but also people in general, be doing for people who have a disability? For the medical model of disability, medicine is a sort of border planing machine that aims at fixing or mitigating the disability by making it a feature of specific bodies that need to be adjusted, so to say. But if disability is about a lack of fit between a body and its environment, then in the social model, there are three options. We can either intervene on the body, or we can intervene on the environment, or we can intervene on both. Look at Down syndrome, for instance. Because now we know it's genetic, we assume or infer that the medical model is the right one for thinking about it. But it turns out that when, instead of focusing on providing medical treatment, you change the social environment of people with Down syndrome, 
you actually can provide them with social support, educational opportunities, a family environment instead of growing up in an institution. It turns out that the adjustment of the surroundings of the environment the person grows up in can dramatically change what people with Down syndrome are able to do. People with Down syndrome can graduate from college, they can write books and be independent. Even the expected lifespan of people with Down syndrome has increased dramatically by using the social model for disability. My name is Clovis. I'm an artist, a painter, and I live in New York City, and I am a person with a disability. On the contrary of the song, I wasn't born this way. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I was diagnosed with a very severe rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, the doctor was uh, a celebrity in uh, this field, and he was a very cold-hearted man. And he told me, at 25, I would not be able to walk anymore. Can you imagine the effect of this diagnosis in the head of a, a 17 years old? What a bleak future. And from this point, my joints started to disintegrate. As if it was not enough, I was hit by a car in the street. I landed in my butt and I had my pelvis dislocated. And from this point, I start a little limp. In the beginning, it was very slight. And the years passing, uh, it became a very important limp, very severe and very visible. I was uh, a rare case. The doctors didn't dare to operate me because my arthritis it would be complicated to operate my pelvis. Back in the day, there was no treatment, only for, uh, you can take uh, pills for pain, but there's no effective treatment for the arthritis. And against all the odds, I carry on with my life. And uh, two years ago, my limp became absolutely unbearable. I have been through two major surgeries. I had my two hips replaced. The first surgery was the replacement of my right hip. And the doctor said to me it was uh, very challenging because it was very spoiled, very, uh, the, the articulation was very destroyed. It was a kind of a bone-to-bone situation. There is no more cartilage. The second one was the, the left hip replacement, and it went very well. But after the two surgeries, I still have a big discrepancy between my two legs, kind of a one-inch difference, and I still was limping. And the doctor recommended me to see another doctor who performed this uh, very modern, very high-technology surgery uh, called limb lengthening. And uh, they uh, cut my bone, they forced the bone grow to fill this uh, one-inch gap, and the recovery was very long, very difficult, but now I don't have this limp anymore. Magical science changed my body, changed my life, but it d didn't change uh, my personality. I am the same person I was before because I never identified myself with my disability. 
against all evidence, I never felt like a, a disabled person. I lived my life. I learned a lot from my disability because I got this very young and uh, I learned about my limitations, my limits. Why do we try to avoid the pain and suffering by all means? Pain and suffering could teach us many things. Pain and suffering is part of a human experience. Why our society is so obsessed with the perfect body? I know people who have this perfect body and yet they are not satisfied. And it's very hard to be satisfied because even the people with disability, they live a little paradox because they want to be treated like normal people. And at the same time, they expect the world to be adapted to them. The care and the support we give to the people with disabilities is the mark of our humanity. Because in nature, animals cannot take care of themselves or other animals. We are humans because we care and we take care of people with disabilities. We, as human beings, we need to see our reflection on the eyes of others is what we call otherness or authority. Otherness has been since forever in art, religion. Otherness is a way to build ourselves in opposition to the other. Monsters, vampires, witches, they are the vessels of otherness. And they represent what we are not, what we don't want to be. They represent what we have inside of us, our dark side, what we don't want to see. And I have the impression nowadays people with disabilities take over the monsters and they represent the ultimate otherness. I would like to talk about uh, the evolution of the semantics of a disability. We uh, start from freak, passing by cripple, disabled, and finishing by person with disabilities. Freak is absolutely out of question. Cripple is still in use, but it's more like an insult. And disabled, I would like to work between a disabled and person with disabilities because, you know, disabled, you are blaming the person. You know, the person is defective person with disability is like a person wearing uh, uh, an accessory, like a person with a hat. The disease, the ailment, it doesn't belong to the person anymore. It's outside of the person. It means we separate uh, the person and the disability. And this is very good, but there's a downside of it. Thinking disability like an accessory softens the, the disability and you can consider is not a problem anymore. I don't propose to go back to the word crippled, but I think we need to be careful with new metaphors. Our perception of certain disability evolves, but how about the individual's perception? When someone feels intrinsically disabled, 
Are we allowed to say that it is just because the environment is faulty and that they have to embrace or own their difference? Let's imagine that I'm abnormally short in comparison to standards of normality. Uh, the average size dictating what ought to be the right size for a woman. And I want to turn to medical treatment. Some people might try to convince me that my petiteness is cute. But I could say in return that it is always easier to speak about openness to difference for people who themselves fall perfectly into the norm. Eventually, people would not judge physicians nor myself for getting this gross treatment if it is my autonomous request. Now, I was doing some research recently on conversion therapy, and when it became illegal in the US, which actually, it turns out, I think it's still legal in some states. Conversion therapy can take many forms, but the common goal is to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, what is interesting is that while it seems obvious that it should be banned and made illegal, there are some people who could claim the right as patients to be treated for their homosexuality and who would probably see as paternalistic the attitude of people who tell them that, well, you're different and it's beautiful, you have to accept your difference and try to make the environment more inclusive and diverse. Why would we give growth hormones to people who don't want to feel different because they are shorter than the average, while we wouldn't provide medical support to adult people who autonomously would want to change their sexual orientation? There is a double standard here, where we arbitrarily decide what differences it is morally permissible to erase and what differences should be promoted. Why don't we discourage all unnatural transformations? Why don't we tell the persons who want to be taller that they shouldn't want that? Of course, this will of the hypothetical person wanting to change their sexual orientation, wanting to be quote-unquote normal, might be the result of a social conditioning. But what isn't? It is like telling a heavy person who wants to lose weight that they have to accept their body the way it is and that because their problem with the way they see their weight is socially constructed, they have to disregard it. And maybe we should just do that and try harder to put an end to fat shaming so people would not crave to be skinnier. But that sounds still very paternalistic in a way. What is problematic is when we are talking about children, about young people who are not supposed to make autonomous decisions yet, are not able to. But how about adults? And even if it's about children, we are questioning today, for instance, if we should let children decide to get surgery to change their sex. Well, if we were consistent, then we should say that children should be able to decide anything for themselves and deem paternalistic any attempt from parents to influence their child. But that seems nearly impossible. What are procreative rights and how does it relate to the ethics of enhancement? If you look at the way parents impose norms on their children by willing them to be social, for instance, to have friends when they are more solitary by nature, which parents would be blamed to try and push their children to be more outgoing and socially integrated? 
Who would blame parents who, with the best intentions, try to shape the future of their children by giving them all the opportunities they can? And upstream, if you push the reasoning a bit further, by trying, perhaps, to genetically enhance their children. How about prenatal testing, where you can pick the embryo that is supposed to be the most functional? That is where we face very complex ethical problems. After all, some people might say, well, like James Watson, for instance, the biologist Sandals refers to, who discovered the structure of DNA with Francis Crick. Watson says something like, well, nothing is wrong with genetic engineering and enhancement as long as they are freely chosen. In the London Times, he said, if you really are stupid, I would call that a disease, end quote, and argues that if genetic enhancement can help that, then why not? Kaplan, another defensor of genetic engineering, points out, fairly enough, that if it is morally permissible for parents to seek betterment after a child is born, then why wouldn't it be before they are born? He says, I quote, There is nothing terrible about subjectivity in a decision to indulge preferences about the traits of one's child as long as those preferences do nothing to hurt or impair the child. Or a bit further, he says, it is not clear that it is any less ethical to allow parents to pick the eye color of their child or to try and create a fetus with a propensity for mathematics than it is to permit them to teach their children the values of a particular religion try to inculcate a love of sports by taking them to football games or to require them to play the piano. Julian Savalescu goes even further by arguing for what he calls procreative beneficence. Everyone should aim at the best life, that is, the life with the most well-being for their child. So it is not only a right, according to him, it is a duty to select embryos or fetuses which, based on the available genetic information, have the best opportunity for leading the best life. What are then the moral issues that arise when facing the possibility of genetic enhancement? Well, the first problem we face is about falling into eugenics. The examples in the history of murder and sterilization undertaken in the name of race hygiene and the improvement of the human species have left us pretty horrified. But that fear is valid only if eugenics is forced upon people by the government. Another moral issue that we are facing has to do with justice. In a free market economic system, Genetic enhancement is not provided to each citizen who might be willing to choose it, and those who cannot afford to pay for it would have disadvantage. But even if people are not coerced, and let's imagine can all have access to genetic engineering, it still feels weird, says Sandal, to give way to embryo screening for the sake of getting the best possible child. Just like in the science fiction movie Gattaca, which depicts a future in which parents routinely screen embryos for height, immunity to disease, IQ, and sex. Why does it feel so weird? Well, on the one hand, Sandal points out two fundamental values that are being jeopardized by genetic engineering, humility and solidarity. 
On the other hand, he also says that it would create an explosion of responsibility and it would erode meritocracy. So let's look at why humility would be jeopardized by enhancement. Sandal warns us about forgetting that our natural talents are the result of merely luck. Our genetic endowments are gifts rather than achievements. So we should think twice before claiming credit for it. Our talents, as he said in the text we read earlier, are not wholly our own doing. He says, I quote, a lively sense of the contingency of our gifts, a consciousness that none of us is wholly responsible for his or her success, saves a meritocratic society from sliding into the smug assumption that the rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor. The second fundamental value that is being jeopardized according to Sandal when we look at enhancement is solidarity. By acknowledging that we just mainly got lucky at the genetic lottery, we should feel less entitled and more obligated to share with people who didn't get that lucky. He speaks about this bounty with those who, through no fault of their own, lack comparable gifts. Sandor speaks about insurance markets at some point and makes a fair point. He says that the solidarity at the core of social security only works if people do not control their medical future and life expectancy. If genetic engineering would allow people to have that control, then the privileged group of people with good genes would opt out of the pool and the people without that control would see their premiums skyrocket. Now, as I said, Sandal also spoke about the explosion of anxiety-inducing responsibility. And here what he means is that the more people have access to enhancement, the less we will admire their achievements, because they will look fake, unnatural, and medically engineered. They are not the result of an effort anymore. But also, it puts an enormous pressure on people to choose the right features for their children. Sandal warns us against hyperparenting that could take dangerous forms with genetic enhancement, where the parents become entirely responsible for who their children are going to be, how they are programmed to behave, and how much they can achieve. It seems that while in theory, acceptance of diversity, thankfully, becomes more and more the norm, if you excuse the pun, we also observe in our overachieving value system that disability is, in fact, what parents still want to avoid at all costs for their children, and perhaps even more than before. We tried to explore some of the dangers within this desire to have children who conform to a premeditated parental project. While certain disabilities are inherently harming the person in question, Others seem to be merely the product of prejudices we have in a society where the pressure for performance itself, perhaps, becomes disabling. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? A podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast, as well as composing all of the music. 
Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.